guys, we're here on Live FM. I'm the host, Rory McMillan, and I'm joined here today by Tom Henry and Ross. Today, we have a special guest, Fred Rubenstein, who has an unfortunate experience with gambling, and we're here to find out more. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rory. Now, just for a first question for you, I just want to know a little more about you. Like, where did you grow up? That's a good one. I haven't got that one a lot. Um, I grew up just around here. I grew up in Caulfield. I actually spent a couple of years at Malvern Central Primary School just across the road. Um, Australian born and bred, Victorian born and bred all my life. And yeah, I finished my schooling at Caulfield Grammar. So yeah, I grew up around here. Yeah. And um, what made you get into gambling in the first place? Uh, that's a loaded question. Um, I suppose my, my, my dad was a gambler. And so that was a very normalized behavior in my household. But I think it's even more personal than that. I think my personality, I was very, have very struggled with the impulse control, especially as a kid. Um, I was very intoxicated by the instant gratification of the win and the loss, you know, riding those emotional roller coasters and my love of sport and just games in general. I think it all kind of fit like a really toxic glove. So I think. That's kind of all those things combined. Um, yeah, it, it created a really bad situation for me. I, I, I told you guys earlier, I lost my dad when I was 13. And I think subconsciously gambling was a connection to him. Um, so yeah, I started probably regularly around 14. And did gambling make you feel like you're connected to your father since he did it? Was that correct? I think so, yeah. it was. It was almost like trying to live up to him because he had a, a really good reputation as a businessman and a mathematician and it wasn't looked down upon for him because of those reasons and he was much more self-contained than I am and I was and that made it really hard for me guys because I didn't want to yeah like let down that image I, I was embarrassed um yeah definitely it was it was I didn't it wasn't a conscious thing like oh I gamble because my dad did it but definitely it was a subconscious part of what the grieving process and trying to you know connect to him when he wasn't here anymore mm. you mentioned earlier that you had luxuries which helped you um escape your addiction mm. what advice would you provide to people who don't have those luxuries uh in terms of luxuries yeah in terms of um Support, like financial yeah. support for getting recovery. That's a really smart question. Um, I would, I mean, you know, if, if there's a safety concern, I, obviously I'd call Lifeline or, or go to a hospital. Um, I would take any support available, you know, whether that be gambler's help. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm lucky that it was very high level psychiatric support because that's what I needed at the time. And that suited me so I could work through the gambling and other traumas and other issues with my mental health. Um, but yeah, I would just say, look, take whatever's available and, and make the most of it, of what you can and just be as honest as you can because yeah, the earlier you're honest, the more you can get into the problem and the quicker you do that, the quicker you can work through it and, and start to come out the other side. But yeah, it's not easy and, and it's not linear, but it's 100% worthwhile, 100%. We all know that gambling is a massive issue in Victoria. I was wondering if you had any steps that you were trying to stop or reduce gambling. When I was gambling? Yeah. Um, a couple of times, I think, like, um, I had a, a big inheritance. And when I was about 200, 225 grand, and when I was about halfway through, I realized, well, if I keep going like this, I had a moment of clarity, I'll be gone probably by the end of the year. Um, that was my first year out of year 12. 
And then I said, okay, I'm going to stop Casino for a while. And I deleted the apps for a while, but didn't delete the accounts. But the problem was I didn't have anything to replace it. You know, I didn't have any structure, anything that was exciting to me, that was illuminating any reason strong enough to stop and do something else. So even though I stopped for a while, it was short term. And then I went back as soon as there was a problem or I was stressed or anxious, bang, straight away back in there. Um, so yeah, my step, my technique was cold turkey, just don't arrive. And I think that was the right way. That's a good way because when you're an addict and when you're a compulsive gambler, you actually don't have control of your amounts. That's a myth. It's a lie that you tell yourself. Once you're in there, you're in there and you're betting, it's all bets are off. All you can do is not arrive in the first place. And that's a really hard thing. But that's really important for someone who doesn't have control. And that's kind of how I would and most people would define someone who has a problem is someone who has control versus someone who doesn't have control. And I definitely didn't have control. So you said um, when you took a break from that gambling for that couple of months, you mm. didn't really have anything to replace mm. what you were doing. So were you doing anything in particular during the day? Like you said, you were quite a fan of football. Did you mm. go and back and try and uh, get back into football or anything? like? Yeah, uh, I did. And I, and I was watching that stuff and I found it quite... I mean, it was good because it was an escape and it always has been for me growing up. So it was like a natural progression going from, you know, loving an innocent love of sport into that gambling when I had access to that money and just the love of the game um, and just gaming in general. Um, but the problem was it was triggering, you know, and my friends were doing it and I wasn't honest about the problem and I would just get bored as well. And that was one of my biggest triggers, guys, was boredom. You know, it wasn't until a year or years later that I had a proper structure and routine, you know, something different that I could really stop in a sustainable way. Because if you stop and you don't replace it, it makes it really hard. You know, that's all you think about for that time. Whereas if you do something else, at least for that time, you're thinking about something else, it might be something positive, you're getting a good positive consequence from that and you're feeling good and it builds momentum the other way. So yeah, the stopping was was good for that time, but because I wasn't ready to go back and study and, you know, I didn't have the confidence to get a job and I was, you know, I was, you know, lying and and being very lazy and I just really got into depressive habits. It was very hard for me to, to kick it until I had a lot of support and a different structure, yeah. And who were those supporters for you at that time? Uh, that's a good question. It was my friends. I was really lucky that they stood by me, even though I borrowed from some of them. I lied to almost all of them. Um, you know, they're f fantastic friends. They, you know, we were young, so they weren't sure exactly how to handle it, but they never, you know, they were loyal to me. They never got rid of me. Um, and having them in the aftermath was, and during was, was great. Um, my mom was probably my biggest support because she dragged me to get, um, psychological help from a psychiatrist who was amazing um, and I and I couldn't have gotten through without that support like I just couldn't have because I figured out so many different things and traumas and information that I was looking for but I was never going to find the way I was going um, so that was great and then I had a, a godmother who was was great to have someone outside the family you know because I think the family feels that that burden and that responsibility and they want to help. But sometimes if you have a health issue, it's bigger than a familial issue, you know? It's something you need external support for. And that's definitely what I did. And I was too embarrassed and ashamed to go inside the family. So having my godmother at first, just someone I could tell the truth to, was really important and really, yeah, really massive in my journey. That was my first few steps in the recovery journey, yeah. Yep. So prior to you 
getting your inheritance was after school was that always something you were looking to do looking to um gamble once you got that inheritance um maybe a little bit yeah i remember when i was year nine i started gambling year nine year 10 and at the time it was just five ten twenty dollar multis you know became maybe 20 50 in year 11 and 12 and that's all i had access to at the time that was my pocket money and yeah that's the, the amount that i had so that's the amount that i bet i think finishing school was such a grind for me and i was so yeah. disconnected with the academic system and i'm really happy that i finished as much as of a grind that it was and a slog but i was very disengaged and disconnected from the, the academic system so i think that's where gambling came in as well as my love of gaming my obsession about you know competition winning and losing like i was a gamer from a young age i was playing arcade games you know looking back now i can clearly see the links um and then obviously having that inheritance having all that time not having any other structure it just fit like a glove and i just quickly lost control you know within like a month or two i developed that routine that we're talking about earlier about you know being at the casino every night all night from you know 8 p.m to 4 a.m to 6 a.m sometimes I'd lose probably four grand a night, win maybe one in eight, one in 10 if I was lucky. Um, And I'd be there the next night losing it. I'd sleep all day and then I'd get up and bet on the horses or dogs or the footy or the soccer, depending if it was weekend and weekdays. And that was my routine for a a whole year. And it was really unhealthy. You know, I was eating junk food. I put on a lot of weight. I was really depressed. Um, It was just, yeah, it was really, really, really bad. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that having a filler is really important to escape Mm. addiction. Obviously, now you found like being a teacher's aide and coaching with soccer. Mm. What made you find that area that you love? That's a good question. Um, I had a friend in school and I was really – one of the things, the biggest barriers for me in stopping was I knew that I'd done a lot of damage and I knew it was going to be a lot of hard work to get back. And I didn't actually have that confidence in myself to to have a job, to do it well. Um, And I didn't want to do the work, you know. Um, But when I hit my rock bottom, which I'm sure we'll get to, I knew that I had to. I decided I have to because this is better than this. Like, I can't keep going like this. Um, what made me get into those fields? Yeah, I had a friend and he said, this is, you know, kind of easy job um, working with kids in before and after school care. And I've, and I've always been confident. I really like people and I've always been confident and, and good with kids and I find them really funny. And and it went really well when gangbusters, you know, had great, great relationships with the kids and soccer coaching was an obvious one for me that's something i always wanted to do was footy coach or soccer coach because i absolutely love sport and i and i like that idea of having a team and the, the tactical dynamic and the relationships um so that was yeah that was just a friend said come down to the club try this job i tried it out and then it built a momentum like you were talking about into teachers aiding into part-time coaching into therapy assisting now into full-time coaching um specialized coaching getting my licenses and all of that and that's been amazing. That's been really, really cool. And I can see kind of a hybrid profession for myself working with, you know, special needs kids in coaching. And I love that. And I love that. And the win that I get from that, from the connection that I get with the kids and from doing a good job and the respect I get within myself and from others, I never got that in gambling. And you never can. You know, that win that you rarely experience is very hollow and it's fleeting and it's nowhere near worth the psychological pain and, and the low of the loss. It's shocking. It's so, so bad. Um, and that's way better. It's way better now, yeah. You said that you used to love gaming. I mm. was wondering what your thoughts are on loot boxes in gaming because that can kind of hook kids into it. Mm. I think it's just another form of like 
let's say junior gambling, like childhood gambling. Like something for me was like talking about that raffle, you know, giving a kid maybe a scratchy. Um, those arcade games where money in for the potential to win something, no guarantee to win something, but the pen, potential to win something, especially if it has like a monetary value of, you know, $50 upwards. Cause to a kid that's, that's significant. That's just another form of junior gambling. Um, yeah, it's, it's very concerning to me, but what's even more concerning is stuff like, you know, I was working with a boy who was six and he had special needs and he had a shocking trauma background in his family. And by the, by the time he was seven, he'd already gone into his great grandmother's purse, stolen her card. And you know, those games with the coins on those apps, he yeah. purchased $800 worth of fake virtual coins on the card because he had no impulse control, you know, completely out of control. That was by the time he was seven. So imagine him at 17, 18 with, you know, with pokies or pokies app. It's, it's, it's horrifying. So yeah, it's, I find it really scary. And I think it's something that people should keep an eye out on if they have a really, I mean, gaming is recognized now by the DSM-5, which is great, a gaming addiction, but definitely something that parents and, and communities should keep an eye on if, if someone has, let's say, obsessive or, you know, compulsive behaviors towards certain games, even from a young age, keep an eye on 100%. Mm. G'day, guys. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to our, gaming, our Gambling Harm podcast on Live FM. Live from De La Salle College, Malvern, Australia. My name is Rory McMillan and my co-hosts are Tom, Henry and Ross. And our special guest today is Fred. Now, Fred, just another follow-up question. You said you experienced rock bottom. Like, what mm. was your rock bottom? My rock bottom was actually... So, first, I lost the whole inheritance. And that wasn't my rock bottom. Because I wasn't ready to stop and do the hard work and be honest with myself that I wasn't going to win that I was a loser in this space. That was yep. one of the hardest things, that stigma of being a loser and that I wasn't smarter than the system. You know, I had such a big ego and bravado and I had to work through all of that. But what came after that was I started borrowing from friends and stealing from my mom. And I knew I could steal from my mom and get away with it because she was soft and free spirited and wild exactly like I am. The first couple of times she gave me a slap on the wrist. You know, she was concerned, she was angry. But the third time, she, I saw a side of her I'd, I've never seen in my life. I'd seen it once. And she said, and I knew she was serious. She said, if you do this again, I'll call the police and I'll press charges for theft. And that was my rock bottom. That was a moment my self-preservation kicked in. And like I told you guys earlier, it's very easy when you're betting through screen, when you're betting through chips, to distance yourself from the loss. And the more pain and anxiety and shame you feel, the more you gamble. Yeah. But when you're forced to make that decision, if I keep gambling, I'm going to go to jail. If I keep drinking, I'm going to die. If I keep taking drugs, I'm going to go to jail. It disables you instead of enables you. And that was my rock bottom. I went, bang, I need to change. I need to invest in my recovery journey. I need to try and get healthy mentally and physically. Yeah. It wasn't the last day I gambled, but it was the first day I decided to try and do something else with my life, be someone else. And I, was, I had it with real conviction. It was a very powerful moment. And that was the moment that I started being honest with my, my godmother and then my psychiatrist. And then it started over time, gradually building a positive momentum the other way. Got my first two jobs, coaching and before and after school care coaching, um, uh, working, educating, and then teacher's aid, which was amazing. And um, part-time coaching, like I said, now full-time coaching. Um, and I love it. I love working with kids. I love working with special needs kids. I love the challenge of that. The same way that I love the challenge of trying to win in gambling, but it was just such an unhealthy, 
unsustainable, unstable form of who I am and what I want to do with my life. And it wasn't until I, I found out information about myself through the psychiatric journey, through the process that I could realize why I gambled, the why, the traumas of my dad and, and a lot of other parts of my personality that fit gambling like a glove. Yeah. And that there are better ways to achieve what I want to achieve. I'm still the same person that I was. I just have a different mindset and I have different level of experience. So I'm really grateful to the psychiatric journey. I acknowledge that's not the way for everyone, but it was absolutely pivotal and fundamental in my journey and I couldn't be here without it. Before those consequences came into your mind, how did you feel or what did you think when you borrowed money from your friends or stole money from your mom? I felt nervous because it was, well, it could go either way. You know, I could have win it. Yeah. And then it's all good or I could lose it and I'm, I'm screwed. But the allure of keep gambling and trying to win things back was stronger than the fear of what if it doesn't happen. You know, that was my mindset. I was consumed by I need to gamble. I need to win some money back, you know, so I can keep gambling and make more money. And it was an irrational mindset. You know, I'd already lost 220 grand. It wasn't going to happen. You know, that's just not how it works. It's designed against you. You know, they feed on your addiction and on your irrational thoughts. So I was just like any other Joe Blow who had delusions of grandeur. And yeah, my mindset was just keep gambling. And that's why, you know, the, the psychiatric stuff was so important because I really had to do work around who I am, what is my mindset, why is my mindset like this, and how I can use the tools that I have to do something better. Mm. Good question. I'm still quite new to Australia, so I just want to know, why do you think gambling is so acceptable in Australia? That's a, a really good question. I think, I mean, there's a huge social culture. I mean, you guys tell me, like, do, do you have mates that have bet and talked about betting before? You know, is, that's so for me, that's a very part of a really big culture of gambling. Like, that's normal. You know, when you turn 18, oh, we put on put on bets yeah. and it might be, you know, a group of 10 and there might only be one guy struggling, but he might feel ashamed because everyone else is doing okay and he doesn't have control. Um, I think it's just a real cultural thing here. Like the normality around these big events and the tolerance that we have of sports advertising, of gambling, um, casinos, the power that they have on governments to advertise and shove it down the throats um, is really big. I think we're a little bit of an ADD culture, like, you know, on the phones all the time and the advertisements. Um, I think that may be a symptom of, you know, we make on average more money per person than other countries. So we look, we're more casual with our, you know, with our money and we want to have those illuminating experiences, let's say, or those, you know, alluring experiences that actually aren't how they're, how they're made out to, to be like the, the advertising. It's made out to be like this, but I promise you addiction is nothing like those fun, fun games. It's, it, it can be a matter of life and death. You know, I know people that have, that have died. I know people that have gone to jail. I know people that have debt that they can never pay off. They'll never own a home. So that's what it really is. And yeah, I, I just think it's such a big cultural norm here and such a big cultural acceptance, socially acceptable, especially amongst young men when it shouldn't be. And I think another reason is that I think drug and alcohol, it's very easy for to see the effects on a drug addict or an alcoholic. Yeah. And it, and it bothers the community, you know, 
they have kids and there's a drunk or a drug addict on the street and they get annoyed. That same person is almost definitely not getting annoyed by a gambler unless the gambler's in their family or unless the gambler's you know, using their money because the gambler's uh, ill health almost always is psychological. It can be physical as well, but it almost always is psychological. So they don't see the effect. There's no physical effect. You know, so it's not as visibly seen. It's more socially accepted. And I think if you have the conversations like this where it's, oh, no, no, this is not a joke. You know, this is a matter of life and death. People are gambling with their lives and their livelihoods. Then maybe that culture will change. Maybe the culture will be less about, okay, we need to bet on these big occasions like Melbourne Cup and Grand Final Day. You know, we need to drink. Maybe it can just be we, we can enjoy the day. Yeah. Mm. You said that in 2015 that you um, started to go to your therapist with your mum mm. and that you're having a hard time opening up. Why do you think this is? I think I was proud within myself. I was thinking, well, I don't want to be the guy seen as the loser. You know, I was telling everyone the money I had was money that I'd won. I didn't tell anyone there was an inheritance. So I didn't want to be honest. I wasn't honest with myself. That's the first thing. You can't be honest with someone else if you're lying to yourself. Um, I think I didn't want to change because I was afraid of hard work and afraid of facing the trauma and some things about myself that I didn't want to face. I wasn't ready to confront. And it was a lot for someone of that age, you know, to go through. Um, and I think yeah, ego was a massive barrier. Like I'm better than the system. I'm better than, you know, these other losers, let's say. I'm not an addict. I don't need help. You know, I'm smarter than that. And yeah, another one I suppose was with the dad complex, you know, because he was done okay for himself in gambling and he was good in business and very well respected in, in, in the mathematical business field, that that was embarrassing. So all those dynamics just made me go in with the mindset of um, let's trick the therapist, you know, let's lie to the guy so I can keep gambling. And he was just too good at his job and too competent and understood it too well he just waited and was strong, but fair and patient and just waited and waited. And eventually, eventually about a year and a half, I built the trust and respect within him and myself to start opening up and telling the truth of what had actually happened. And that's when I started building that positive momentum the other way, away from gambling. Mm. You told me a story um, before the show that when you were nine years old, you were at a arcade game or something or, mm. or uh, I think it was Cinema actually room, an yeah, AFL grand yeah. final or something and you won like the big prize and your dad almost showed disappointment in his eyes because yeah. he could see it. So your dad was never a supporter or never wanted you to gamble or anything No, like def that. definitely not. No, I think it was like a case of like do what I say, not what I do. You know, he could see it was 2006 grand final West Coast against Sydney and he could see we were in a cinema room like this and – um, a guy was handing out raffle tickets for Norm Smith. You know, that's another normalized behavior of gambling. And you can see how badly that went for me. Um, and, you know, I put in a couple of bucks. I got a player out, random player. The player ended up winning. I was nine and I was going crazy. I was so excited. It was so illuminating. Um, and I could see, yeah, how disappointed my dad was because I think he could see all the signs, you know. He knew how crazy I was about game gaming, playing arcade games, you know, games where you got to put coins in and try and win something. And he could, I think he could see all the, the signs of the risk. Um, and obviously not having him there and having those those boundaries and that discipline um, when I was going through that or, you know, even as a young child, I think that affected me in a really negative way, especially in, in terms of the gambling. But, yeah, definitely those stories were a precursor. Another one where I got a scratchy when I was 11 and then I 
tried to keep buying scratchies and I was paying people to buy me scratchies and stuff like that. And it just, as you get older, it evolves, you know? That's why we, we talk about the loot boxes and stuff because it's a gateway. So, yeah. No, that was a, a really, really unfortunate thing. But, yeah, it was interesting that my dad had that reaction even though he was a, a frequent gambler. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank you, it's guys. You're great. great to have you on the show. Um, so we're talking live from DLSL College, Malvern. And you've been listening to our Gambling Harm podcast on Live FM. My name's Roy McMillan and my co-hosts today are Tom, Henry and Ross. Thank you for joining us and we hope you have found the information today very useful. Until next time, have a great day. Great job, guys. Uh,